0: Taste the Mediterranean through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. Save on animal welfare certified bone-and-beef short ribs, sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, and more. Find sales on Parmigiano Reggiano, charcuterie and ground lamb. Grab an olive boule bread from the bakery. Plus, wines from the Mediterranean start at just $8.99. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. Must be 21+. Please drink responsibly. Realm presents
1: Dead Air. Episode 7. One. When I get home, bleary from the long, frantic drive back from Eddyville, I still can't believe Brandon's dead. The sight of the police car on our street is another slap. What's it doing here? Officer Matthews couldn't, wouldn't explain it. Maybe it's time I just asked. It's still light out, and there are people out and about up the street, so I chance it. I stalk to the car, checking over my shoulder a few times, and stand by the driver's side door. There, I hesitate. Inside is a cop with close-shorn brown hair and a strong jaw. He hasn't noticed me, and I'm not sure what to do now. I raise my hand to knock on the glass, and that motion he does see. He takes one look at me, standing at his window, and screeches away. God, Macy, your paranoia is in full swing. You probably just interrupted a drug bust or something. Or, he was shocked that I approached and is off to report to Officer Matthews or Brockman or whoever has him watching me. Yep, paranoia in full swing. Rattled, I dash up to our apartment, not bothering to worry if it looks like I'm running. I unlock the deadbolt, noting the irony that Kara finally did lock it after all this time. Kara? I call out, and my voice is shaky. I need to talk to someone about what happened to Brandon. It's impossible not to feel responsible, because I am, for bringing the past back into the light of the present, if not for the act itself. Kara said that I might be bringing danger to our doorstep. But maybe it's not our doorstep I should have been worried about. I look down at my fingers and remember the sense of numbness from the bouquet of Hemlock and correct myself there's plenty of danger to go around. I know that. I just briefly forgot in pretending to be Mackenzie. Given the poking around I've been doing into the secret society, I wondered all the way home what men with their connections are capable of. A prison murder seems well within reach. I'd been hoping Brandon called me in so he could recant his confession. What else would be important enough that he had to tell me in person? Kara still doesn't answer when I call her name so I go and peek in her room. Unmade bed, abandoned jeans on the floor, stacks of books teetering on the nightstand. She must be working. I'm here alone, and while I want to talk, I'm also a tiny bit relieved to skip an I told you so for now. I stopped at Panera halfway home, did a quick edit, and used the free Wi-Fi to upload the podcast. There's always a delay before it populates to the various apps, but it should be up everywhere by now. I can check in on the first reactions, maybe add some of them to the feed. I had no choice but to hurry it. For one thing, the newspaper's going to write about Brandon's death. If it bleeds, it leads, is a cliche for a reason. I'm surprised that reporter hadn't called me yet. By getting the podcast out right away, I earned some protection, maybe. I explained my side mourned Brandon, and made it inconvenient for whoever is behind his death to try to come after me. For once, the spotlight is my friend. So why doesn't it lessen the guilt I feel pressing down on me? Or is solving this thing the only way to do that? Talking about it was like reliving the moment I found out. You can hear the tremble in my words, the fear. I am visible in this one, I ended up with a short podcast, but it got the job done. The other message beside mourning? If it's meant to make me go away, Brandon's death was a mistake. It only convinced me even more that I must find out if Brandon was used to cover for Peg's real murderer. But the big questions remain, why a cover-up, and by who? I am not giving up, not with a man's death on my conscience. And the official cause of death being suicide means some people will interpret this as proof of Brandon's guilt, that he finally made good on his attempt of 18 years ago. Every inmate death gets investigated, and so did his. There's no reason to suspect it was anything more. But most of my fan base will not be eager to buy such a convenient story. And me? I can't afford to because I all but know this wouldn't have happened without me putting Brandon McDonald back on the public radar, where he caught the eye of the Kentucky Innocence Project and read its battalion of armchair detectives in the first place. At that thought, I decide to take a shower before braving contact with the outside world, a.k.a. popping open my laptop and opening Reddit. My hope is that a dose of steaming hot water will cut through the haze of questions and help me arrive at clearer answers on what to do next. If I'm honest, I'm afraid people will blame me as much as I blame myself. Mm. My phone buzzes with a text, it's from Ryan. Brandon McDonald was murdered? That's an interesting way for him to put it. The official statement is definitively suicide. Why is Ryan jumping to murder? Or did the person who informed him put it that way? I respond, I know, I went back to visit him today. They told me he committed suicide not that he was murdered, when I got there. Where'd you get your intel? Ryan takes a long moment to respond, and I have to relax my grip on the phone. Ryan, dead air, where do you think? Why didn't you ask me to go with you? Um, Because I'm not sure you're playing me for a fool when you join the murderous order of your rich bro dudes. The phone rings before I can formulate an actual response. Ryan's name flashes up on the caller ID. I hesitate, but answer. He talks first. Macy, can we cut the bullshit? No more cryptic back and forth. What's up with you? You've got to be torn up over this. I know I am. Why are you treating me like I'm the murderer all of a sudden? I think of Delilah's photo on his phone at the party, of his induction ceremony into the Order of St. Franklin, which I know from overhearing his phone call is imminent. Suddenly, I realized that now, more than ever, I need to find out exactly when and where it is and see if I can wrangle my way in without anyone noticing. It's the only way I'll find out what the Order of St. Franklin is really up to, what they're truly capable of pulling off. Which means, even though I can't trust Ryan, I need him. I could try Grandma Georgia, but she'd tell him I asked and she probably wouldn't know the details so he's my only way in without setting off more of the order's alarm bells. Right now, they're my prime suspects, though I didn't say that in the episode. I just don't know who to trust, I say, and before he can respond, but I want to trust you. I'm sorry I've been distant. I need to sell this. I pause and ask the next thing carefully. I'd rather talk in person. Do you mind coming to pick me up? I could use a nice meal in a place populated by living, breathing, non-incarcerated people. I no longer care if he sees my shitty apartment, but being in public will remind me to keep my wits about me if he pulls a seduction maneuver. He's not getting into my bedroom. I can't let him see my piles of evidence and taped-up murder wall of suspects. It's been hard enough keeping Kara out of there, as the research spread like a virus, taking over the whole room, inch by inch. I'll be there in 30 minutes he says, and the call ends. I should pull it together, change clothes and freshen up. Instead, I walk over to Brandon's mugshot and stare at it, as if I can read what happened to him in a decades old facial expression. He's so young in this photo, fresh faced and prison ink free. No one's idea of a murderer, except those of us who know a killer can look like anyone. Brandon McDonnell, barely older than I am now, with a faint dusting of freckles on his cheeks, and a life in prison for a crime he didn't commit ahead of him. I'm sorry no one saved you, I say quietly, then shake my head. No, I'm sorry I didn't. Two. It's early evening and I'm watching out the window blinds as Ryan's truck swings into the parking lot. He shuts it off, the lights going dark, and the door opening. I rush out, lock in the deadbolt, and call down the stairs. I'm coming! Oh, he says when I meet him at the bottom. As always, he looks more delicious than a cinnamon roll. I was gonna come up and knock on the door. I shrug. No need. The look he gives me is skeptical. Are you really okay? I heard the podcast. I'm freaking out. No, I'm not. I'm freaking out too, I admit. Also, I'm starving. A whisper of a smile. Well, I can help with that at least. Do you like sushi? I've never had it, because Dad is highly skeptical of fish this far inland. Sure, I say. Good. I made a reservation at Tomo, hoping that was the case. Best spicy tuna roll in town. My favorite brand of comfort food. He waves for me to join him, opens the passenger side door of the truck. Like we're on a date, which we are not. I climb in and he lingers beside me in the open door. Macy, what happened with Brandon? It isn't your fault. My throat tightens and I feel that stinging sensation in my nose like I might start crying. Again. It is my fault, almost certainly, but I needed someone to tell me it isn't. Dinner, I managed to croak out. You got it, he says, and leans in to kiss my cheek before shutting the door. You don't trust him. You can't. That I still have to remind myself of this isn't a great sign. Not like it hasn't been the longest damn day, though. Anyone might slip up and get weak after a day like this, The memory of Delilah's photo on his phone surfaces, and I resolve to stay strong. Ryan drives the speed limit the short distance from my place to the far better neighborhood of Chevy Chase. There's a gourmet salt store over here, an artisanal sausage gastro pub, and one of my favorite independent bookstores. Need I say more? He keeps sliding me glances, checking up on me. I manage to breathe my way through about to cry and back to pretending to be okay by the time we park. There's a task to be accomplished, and I focus on that. The young Japanese woman at the host stand greets Ryan familiarly and leads us to a table toward the back. We have a view of the sushi bar, and the chef also clearly knows Ryan on sight. We both get warm smiles and a nod. The server leaves us a skinny paper menu with specials and then ducks over to grab two plates with food on them and sets them in front of us, along with a small white bottle and two little white cups. Thank you, Ryan says. My pleasure. And then she leaves. There are chopsticks on the table, but no other silverware. Mayday, mayday. Ryan takes the open-mouthed white bottle and pours a clear liquid into each of our cups. Sake? he asks, and pushes one over to me when I shrug. He picks up his set of chopsticks and scrapes them against each other, then settles them into his fingers easily and serves us each some of the appetizers on square white plates. I pick up my own chopsticks and try to imitate him, only to look up and find him watching me. This is your first time eating Japanese, isn't it? He asks, why didn't you just tell me? My cheeks are hot with embarrassment. I don't know. I guess I didn't think it through. You'll love it, he says. This is gomae, spinach salad with peanut dressing. The dumplings are gyoza. They're filled with pork, and they're one of the best things in life. We'll ease you into this. I lift the white cup and down its contents in a single gulp. I gasp at the perfume and fire taste. Ryan waves the waitress over and orders two beers. You usually sip that kind of sake, he says. "'Do you want my help with the chopsticks?' "'I was thinking I might use them to stab myself and end this humiliation,' I say. "'He reaches across the table and takes my hand, repositions it. "'My traitorous body heats at the contact. "'But when his fingers linger on mine for an unnecessarily long time, "'I remember the tingling from the hemlock. "'I draw my hand away. "'We can ask for regular silverware if you want,' he says. "'Never,' I answer.' and I do my best. The chopsticks are easier to use without his hands on mine, and with my fingers in the right position. I imitate him again, picking up a small portion of the salad and making it to my mouth. I realize Ryan's watching me chew. I swallow. Well? He asks. Good, I say, and wish I didn't have to look at him right now. Do you want me to take care of the sushi order when she comes back? He asks. Trust me? I don't. I can't. You've been lying to me. I know better. My dad always says fish is best near the ocean. He's not wrong, Ryan said, but the Toyota factory is just over in Georgetown. That means we have extremely fresh, extremely good sushi all over town. I'll get some vegetables, too, just in case. Fine, I say, and gratefully accept the beer the waitress returns with. Ryan ticks off seemingly every other box on the sushi menu and hands it to her. Reprieve over. I drop my first dumpling twice, but finally get it to my mouth, and must admit it's worth the effort. Ryan is watching me again when I look over. So, he leans forward a little, his blue eyes fill with worry. Did you mean what you said on the podcast about continuing? You could stop. Maybe you should. Maybe we both should. How can you say that? Brandon is dead. Well, That's why I'm saying it, he says, pushing back. And you had to go to the ER. Did you find out who sent the flowers? I ask. Apparently it was a group effort, he says darkly. I just... maybe we should leave this alone. Answers aren't worth more people getting hurt. I feel I encouraged you to do this. I'm responsible if something happens to you. I'm fine, and I'm responsible for myself, I say, my heart beating hard. Do you still think it's possible Brandon was framed? Ryan hesitates and then nods. Why would he kill himself now? That's the question, isn't it, I say. But also, who would be motivated enough to take him out now? Who is that scared? That's the question I still don't have the answer to. I pause. Your order buddies... Did you tell them about you and me? No, he says shortly. Of course not, but they're going to find out. Everyone is. It has to happen sooner or later. How are you going to deal with that? I don't know, he says. Mm. As if to punctuate my point, my phone vibrates in my pocket. I turn the screen so Ryan can see the ID. Lexington Herald Leader, the reporter. I answer. This is Mackenzie Walker. Hi, Mackenzie. It's Daniel Spears again. I heard your podcast, so I know you're aware of Brandon McDonald's death. My editor is insistent on a story, and you're part of it. Do you have a comment on his death besides what's in the episode? I also need to confirm your age. Here it is. My parents are going to find out about the podcast. Time's just about up for me and for Ryan. I'm 22. I guess my comment is, I stay focused on Ryan as I talk... Brandon McDonald's death is a tragedy, whatever the cause. All I can do is remain committed to finding out the truth about Peg Graham's murder. And I'm so sorry that someone else ended up dead. I hope you don't blame me. Saying those things out loud is more likely to inflame than help, though. Following the news has taught me that. Thanks, Mackenzie, Daniel says. It'll be in the paper tomorrow, online in a couple of hours. Thanks for the heads up. I end the call and Ryan raises his eyebrows. How will your parents react to your name in the paper? I want to ask him how his friends will, when they figure out the girl he's been hanging out with, is the podcaster they sent a poisoned bouquet to. But then, it's not like the story will run with a picture of me. Where would they get one? I made my Facebook private weeks ago. I guess I'm about to find out. I remind myself why I'm here. I need information about Peg and Delilah, which means I need to determine the truth about the St. Franklinites. New topic. Do you have any plans with your order friends anytime soon? I'd like to talk to a couple of them. Why? Ryan leans back, surprised. I don't think that's a good idea. Worlds colliding? I can be subtle. No, because they're idiots, he says. He's so convincing... Or he would be, if only I hadn't seen him buddy-buddy with Travis. And they're my age. At least the guys I hang out with are. What could they know about what happened back then? They might know about Delilah. You might. It's on the tip of my tongue. Yeah, you're right, I say. Sleeping dogs. His eyes narrow, suspicious of my dropping it. Who could blame him? It's not exactly something I'm known for. More food comes, then, on several massive platters, a rainbow of raw fish arranged on rice, along with a few crispy fried things. A couple is being seated a few tables over from us, and they wave at Ryan. They're older. Ryan looks at me like he wants to continue our conversation, but then he reverses course. I'll be right back, he says apologetically, and gets up. They're friends of Grandma Georgia's, and I'll never hear the end of it if I don't say hi. He hesitates. Start with the tempura veggies if you want, he says, and points to the fried stuff. I decide to look at this as an opportunity, rather than be offended that he doesn't offer to introduce me. I pick up my phone and frown at it. Crap. My palms heat up. My phone died. I lie. I just want to text my mom some kind of warning. Can I borrow yours? He hesitates, but he unlocks his phone and hands it over. He heads over to the older couple's table. Yes, I realize this is even worse than the first time I snooped. He obviously trusts me, thinks I'm stupid, or believes he has nothing incriminating on his phone. Okay, it's definitely not the last, because Delilah's photo is on there. I pull up his message history and search through it. It doesn't take long to find the name I'm looking for. Travis. He texted Ryan yesterday. Okay. I see is at Woodford. Party out there first. Bourbon will flow. Ryan's response was, looking forward to it. I back out of the messages and start to tap in a text to my mom I have no intention of sending. Ryan returns and I delete what I've typed, push the home button, and pass over the phone. Did you send it? He asks. Chickened out, I say. It might raise more questions if I text from a strange number. Implied... Especially if I have to explain that it's yours. I'll call her later. Right after I figure out how to infiltrate Ryan's private induction ceremony, which is apparently being held at the Woodford Reserve bourbon distillery. I brace for the worst and dive into the fray when I get home. Topic. Dead Air Episode 6. Rest in Peace. Fuck you. Fuck me, am I right? Plot twist. Serial fan, have some respect, Mackenzie might be reeling right now. You can hear it in her voice. It's obvious she doesn't believe Brandon offed himself. Fuck you, so who did? Serial fan, none of our suspects directly, but maybe someone indirectly. Blah, blah, blonde, hang in there, Mackenzie. There's an Imgur link, and I click to find a crusty movie gif, Whoopi Goldberg as the psychic and Ghost, telling Demi Moore, you in danger, girl. <laughs> That's nice. And then I see the next comment. Sunny die. She should kill herself like he did. I expected the ugly sentiment, and I'm sure my show email will be filled with the usual rape and death threats, but I still shut the laptop cover. A man is dead. When my phone rings and I see who it is, Mom. My stomach drops and keeps going, shit. I'm not ready for that conversation yet. I hit ignore. The Reddit gang is right on one count though. It's time to take another look at all the suspects and consider who could have had Brandon killed. I can't let my personal feelings about the order of St. Franklin blind me to evidence that someone else could be responsible. What if it is Cox or the police or some stranger? There's Dick Carlyle, a.k.a. the husband, whose alibi has gotten shakier, but whose possible motivations are elusive and who frankly doesn't seem together enough to engineer a cover-up. Although maybe he was different 18 years ago. He married up in terms of personality and stability, so why would he intentionally mess that up with murder? He had nothing to gain financially from her death. Cox and Iron Gate Farm There's a small but dedicated Reddit contingent convinced that the competition was responsible for her death. Possibly because of the vehemence with which they've pursued that theory, I've not been able to manage to set up an interview yet. Cox has never returned my calls. If only I'd known the Derby actually was my one chance. Then there's the nanny, who I personally think is more of a clue than a suspect. The most bananas theory from the internet is some kind of drug conspiracy involving a cartel and horse industry money funding it. People had combed through old articles that were interesting and outlandish, but never directly connected to the Carlisles or Grams in any way I could see. There could be someone we don't know about yet. And then there's the Order of St. Franklin, still my number one suspect, no longer just for Peg, but also for Delilah. Delilah was digging into them before she died. Dick is apparently a member, and Ryan will be soon. It's hard to say what the order's priorities are. So why not them? Dick might not have been involved directly, but that doesn't mean the order wasn't. I pick up my phone and scroll through my contacts to find the catering service I usually work for. They're one of two companies that do nearly every fancy event and she-she private party for the wealthy in Lexington and the surrounding counties, Maybe I'll be lucky for once. Sarah here, the wait staff coordinator answers. She likes me. I'm reliably on time, never pull no-shows once I commit, and never get drunk or steal pricey booze from the events. It's Macy, I say. Look, I've got some extra expenses this month, and I desperately need whatever paying gigs I can book. Do you have anything? Before she can answer, I add, this week would be great, and I can drive out of town if need be. We've got a dinner party this weekend, she says. Small, but I could squeeze you in. No tips, though. Not what I'm looking for, but I can't afford the burned bridge. Sure, text me the details. So my company isn't catering this event. That means round barn catering and fireworks must be doing it. I've never worked with them, but I have a friend from high school who does. I call her next. Jen confirms that she's on for an event at Woodford on Tuesday and says I might as well just show and see if there's room for another warm body. They said it was full, but you know someone on the schedule won't make it. Bless flaky college students. What would I do without them? Good thing the uniform is always the same. White shirt, black skirt, a costume to make you visible and invisible at once. But I can't risk anyone recognizing me. Not to a party full of order cronies. And Ryan, of course. Which means I've got some shopping to do before Tuesday night. Wander with us into a world of magic. Join Jenny and Madeline in
0: this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with and reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. We'll see you soon in the forest of feminist
1: fairy tales. 3. The knocks at my front door the next morning are brisk and insistent. Kara and I emerge from our rooms at the same time and squint toward it like vampires disturbed from our coffins. I didn't sleep well, but even so, it's too early for company. Thin light slants through small cracks in the closed blinds. Is it the cops? Kara asks, I heard about that guy in prison. I frown, why would they be here? I don't know, to talk to you? About what, I haven't done anything wrong. I pull my robe tight around me, panicked thoughts begin to spiral. What if it's the cop from yesterday? What if something happened to Ryan? What if a million things? Kara doesn't respond, other than to give me a look that has a be my guest quality about answering the door. Fine, I say, pulse thrumming and move toward the door. The peephole distorts the face on the other side, but I'd know her anywhere. Can't put off talking to mom forever, it turns out. I completely blanked out the fact that she knows where I live. As if turning on do not disturb at bedtime would keep her from coming over. Worse than the cops, I say, low to Kara. Bracing myself, I unlock the deadbolt, then the bottom lock, and open the door. I was gonna call you today, I say, before mom can get a word out. Her face is taut and she shakes her head. She looks past me. Hi, Kara, can I have a moment alone with my daughter? Of course, Mrs. Walker. Kara disappears with a wave and a sympathetic glance. We weren't up yet, but I can make coffee, I offer. I'm desperate to have something to do besides face Mom right now. She rarely gets angry with me, but when she does, it's not pretty. This is like staring into Hurricane Not Pretty. I don't want any coffee. I start to say, well, maybe I do, which is a Mackenzie line if there ever was one. But I just trail Mom to the couch and sit meekly. Macy all the way. I should probably start. I can explain. How can you be so stupid? She asks. After what happened to Delilah, do you think I don't go to bed every night and wake up three, four, five times wondering if I know you at all? If you're out there taking the same stupid risks, if Mom, I say, I'm not Delilah. I know that, but you're following in her footsteps, she says. Why would you do this and keep it a secret? You knew it was wrong and you deliberately kept it from us. Okay, that's true, but I need to break through to her somehow. She needs to know this isn't all for nothing. Mom, I'm not convinced anymore that Delilah's death was an accident. She stares at me. Apparently speechless. When she finally speaks, her voice is more sad than angry. Macy, sweetheart, is that what this is really about? You can't bring her back. You're not the police. You can't find out who done it. She overdosed. She. She. Do you honestly think that Delilah would shoot up? The girl who was a straight A student since birth? I lean forward. I don't believe it. Macy, her grades weren't good last year. You don't know everything. The implication echoes through me. Did I know Delilah at all? But I know things about what she was doing that Mom doesn't know, too. She's shaking as she goes on. That's not the point. You may not see it, but you're doing the exact thing she did. Messing around with things beyond your control, and you're gonna get hurt. She pauses, her lips a line of disapproval. Macy, I work for these people. Richard Carlyle came to see me. If you don't stop this, it could have consequences for me, too. Did he threaten you? Your job? And why hasn't he confronted Ryan if he knows enough to track down my mom? Or is that why Ryan wants me to back off? He didn't have to, Mom says and sighs. They do not appreciate having their dirty laundry aired. You're playing with fire, Macy. I'm just looking for the truth. The fight leeches out of her then, she deflates. All I know is my daughter is in trouble and she's not listening to me. Peg Graham was a nice person, but she's been gone a long time. You're stirring up a lot of bad memories for people. Let this go. Let it all go. A thousand responses cycle through my head, but the one I settle on is simple. I can't, I say. I wouldn't have anyway, but after what happened to Brandon, I can't. After a man killed himself, I would think, Macy Walker, that you would be smart enough to know this is exactly the moment to walk away. How can I stop now? I've made promises. Mom considers me. Her eyes shimmer with tears, and it makes me want to do what she says, to do anything to make her happy. I've never seen that look in my mom's eyes, not regarding me. I I have to go, she says. I have to go to work. Please give this up. You're hurting that family, and you're hurting ours. All those questions about the Carlisles you were using me. Mom, it wasn't like that. She stands up, raising a hand for silence, and I can't believe this is over so fast, that she's not going to ask me more questions, grill me more, make me swear to stop. She leans down, smooths back the hair from my face, and kisses my forehead, the way she used to say goodnight when I was a little girl. I love you. I don't want to lose you, she says. And then she's gone. When she leaves, I pull up the newspaper article and read it. The lead is Brandon's death, and there's a brief recounting of the murder and the sensational attention it received when it happened. Daniel Spears did me the courtesy of burying me halfway through as a source of recent attention to the murder, including questions about Brandon McDonald's guilt, is University of Kentucky senior Mackenzie Walker, who produces the podcast Dead Air. There's a link to the podcast included, and I feel another rush of guilt when I catch myself wondering how many new subscribers I have as a result. Sorry, Mom. There's no stopping now. Four. I decide to show up early enough to take a tour of Woodford Reserve to get a feel for the layout. The distillery is nestled in part of the bluegrass 20 minutes outside town, and strayed off a Tourist Bureau ad for the Kentucky Bourbon Trail. Horse farms sprawl across rolling hills on the drive out, and I wind along a twisty road until I reach the large parking lot outside a cozy visitor center. The setting is beyond picturesque. Forested hillsides surround stately limestone structures that have been here so long they seem like a natural part of the scenery. Barrels stamped with the Woodford Reserve brand are dotted everywhere as accent pieces. Like the horse industry, the bourbon world is part of my home that's mostly foreign to me. What I know about it comes from working at the bar. The sorority frat crowd loves their mid-range-priced maker's mark, often liberally mixed with Coke, a combo which was too sweet for me the one time I tried to sip. The pricier Woodford and Basil Hayden's drinkers rack up big tabs, but tend to be shitty tippers. Avoid anyone bleeding about the outrageously expensive Pappy, Or, at the opposite end of the price spectrum, Beam, for that matter. Bullet and Four Roses I like on principle. Their fans hardly ever tip under 20%. There are about 15 hardcore bourbon fans on the tour along with me, mostly out-of-staters, and I actually do learn quite a bit. Bourbon began being produced on this spot and others like it way back in the 1800s, an innovation of Scots-Irish and other settlers, Prohibition, of course, created a bit of a hiccup. The name bourbon might come from the county, where Heartstone Farm is located, Natch, styled after the Bourbon Royals of France. There are plenty of origin stories, but no one knows for sure. Whatever the case, Kentucky's limestone water and climate made it the perfect place to distill what is called America's native spirit by the industry, ever since Congress passed a resolution saying no other county can produce it. What started out as an innovation by poor settlers has turned into a booming business for the elite. I also learned that the distillery encompasses a bunch of buildings, some inconveniently far from the others. They bus us down the hill to the working areas, where several of the main steps in the distillation process take place. I take note of the paths that run along the property. Then, I say a silent prayer that the main events tonight will be up at the visitor Center with its big fireplace, as opposed to way down the hill in one of the giant temperature-cycled warehouses filled with barrels of aging bourbon. For one thing, even in a big group, there's an eerie feeling down here. A creek flows past, whispering secrets. Old limestone warehouses and older small buildings line one bank, and on the other looms an isolated, tree-covered hillside. Inside the dark warehouse, the barrels of aging bourbon stack up in tall rows of wooden shelves, stamped with the legend of when they were created. The guide tells us about the angel's share, the amount of liquid that evaporates as the bourbon ages, disappearing into nowhere. I can't help thinking this feels more like a hideout for devils. So yeah, I'm hoping the main event is cozy and confined. Though I still don't quite understand having a big party like this for a secret society event. There's bound to be some private areas I'll have to gain access to. Sarcastic hooray. I stop by the cafe to grab an ale-8 and pre-made honey-baked ham and brie sandwich and chat with the girl behind the cash register. How do you like working here? I ask, trying to start a conversation that'll give me some useful tidbits. It's a job, she says. She gives me a more discerning examination, then adds, Plenty of middle-aged creeps who drink before they get here. I bet. Do you just staff the cafe, or do you guys do any private events? She frowns. New Year's Eve, the tasting tours, that's about it. But I bet someone could help you if you're interested in more information. No, not for me. I couldn't afford it. But I'm surprised, I say as casually as I can, It's so pretty out here. She shrugs. Drunk people are a liability, so the owners are pretty choosy. Plus, there's a certain cachet to limiting stuff, you know? True enough. And the Order of St. Franklin would want all the cachet they could manage. Still, so much for useful tidbits. Then again, if cater waiters are working the party, then the venue staff probably isn't makes sense, since the dining room is small enough not to require much in the way of bodies on the daily. Most people are here to drink and shop, not eat. I take my sandwich out to my car, which I parked at the very far end of the lot. After I eat, I change into my ensemble for the evening in the back seat and repark farther up the road in a wide spot with an excellent view of the entrance to the parking lot. Then I wait. My dad texts me late in the afternoon, having apparently caught up to the news about the podcast. Your mom will calm down. We'll be fine. Proud of you, Lois Lane. My eyes sting, and in that moment I know how much I needed a vote of confidence from someone I love. I text back a heart. Buoyed, a spike of perversity inspires me to text Ryan as the last of the tourists are driving past. It's almost showtime. Heya, I write. Hey back, he responds. What's up? Finally talked to my mom. That went... Well... You have plans tonight? Free to talk? I wait more. Finally, he writes back. Wish I could. Family obligation. Might go late. Call you after? Kay, I send, while imagining all the delicious and scathing responses my fingers could type back instead. But no... I don't want Ryan to know I'm here. I have a plan for that, too, and it involves avoiding him as much as possible. Part of me is certain I'm making too much of an effort, for Travis or for him. Rich guys like this don't notice the help, even the nice guys, and I no longer count Ryan among them. I feel a hot sting of shame and confusion, and yes, longing buried there, too, as I remember how I trusted him, how he believes he's still fooling me. Well... It's time for me to play them for fools now. I pull on the wig I picked up for more than I expected it to cost at Pamela D's. Shoulder-length black with layers. I add more makeup than I normally attempt, based on a YouTube tutorial about how to look older, aimed at teens without fake IDs. I barely recognize the end result. I hope this disguise will be enough to keep me safe. I'll just have to stay out of sight as much as possible but the anticipation of broadcasting whatever I learn here on my next podcast balances my nerves. I owe this to Brandon McDonald and to Peg Graham. I owe it to Delilah. When I spot my friend Jen's car driving in, I turn the key in the ignition and follow her back to the distillery. I'll tell her the new look is something I'm trying out for its effect on tips. Here goes everything. Five. I suppose one way to hide a secret society is in plain sight. The spacious welcome center fills up faster than I expected, and the bourbon and amuse bouche are flowing freely. The head of catering accepted my arrival with a welcome once Jen vouched for me. As expected, someone didn't show up. I'm supposed to fill out a W9 at the end so the company can pay me, but I plan to forget. I give my name as Mac and told Jen that's what I'm going by now, too, on the off chance anyone feels the need to call for me. Ryan is in a shirt and tie, and he looks so good it's no struggle to keep an eye on him as he circulates in the room. He doesn't seem to notice me. I pretend I'm grateful. An already sloshed Travis loops his arm around Ryan's neck. Ryan gives him an easy grin, all perfect white teeth. Together, they make their way over to the corner, where the same group from the bar the other night is gathering. Hemlock pins on collars again. Subtle. The boys slip outside, and no one else seems to notice. A party within a party. I say I need a ten-minute bathroom break and mouth a smoke to Jen and follow them into the night. There's a big bright moon, and I'm grateful for that, because the grounds are otherwise sparsely lit. I stay well behind, and as soon as we're down the hill from the visitor center, the group gets loud enough to track by sound. I cross my fingers we're going to the first set of buildings with the big room and the three giant pot stills. It's not nearly as eerie as the warehouse, or as far from other people, and the option of calling for help if I need it. But, no, they keep going. I hear hoots of laughter as someone attempts to climb on top of a barrel and someone else shoves them off. I'm all nerves in the dark, jumping at every sound, afraid I'll be busted any second. But it must be a skeleton crew of workers watching over the liquid gold tonight, ordered to stay out of sight, because neither the group nor I encounter another soul. If I'm busted, it'll be by the order. The same order that may be capable of killing people who get in their way. The whispers of the creek greet us as we reach the final set of buildings. Finally, here's someone else. Two men are waiting at the door to Warehouse C as I peek around the corner. Richard Carlyle stands illuminated by a torch stuck in the ground, flames licking the air. He wears a crimson cloak with a small object fixed just under his left shoulder. I'd be willing to bet it's a hemlock pin. The other man is in shadow and I can't make out his face. He passes a length of cloth, more cloaks I realize, to Richard, who solemnly hands one to each boy as they enter the warehouse. Ryan is last, and they pause to regard each other. The older generation of the secret society, here to induct the younger. How very touching. Ryan accepts the cloak and then goes inside, followed by Richard. The other man remains out here. He paces forward, lighting a cigarette. Other than the creek, it's so quiet that I'm worried I'll give myself away by breathing. Ryan and his friends don't emerge. I'm sure it's only been a minute or two, or five, but it feels like forever. The smoker lights another cigarette and strides farther away. Is there something familiar about him? No, I'm reaching. What do I do now? If I can't get in the warehouse, then I'll never find out what I came here for. The door flings back open and the boys file out, wearing their new ceremonial robes, pins at the shoulders just like Richard. I can't. Not that I'd need to. I'd recognize Ryan's walk, the way he carries himself. He's not with them, so he's still inside. The smoker waves to Richard, who comes out with the boys, and says, Almost done. A warning sounds at the back of my mind at the rumble of the smoker's voice, but I don't know why. Not quite, Richard says, walking closer to him, and his tone implies he's offended to be asked. Travis follows, approaching the other man. Can I bum a smoke? The cloaked order members and the somehow familiar man meander together toward the row of smaller buildings and the creek beyond. Ryan still inside the warehouse. This is my chance. I hesitate for another second, and then I take it, rushing forward. They left the door open, and I slip inside where the tall barrels sit in row upon orderly row, floor to high ceiling, on their wooden shelves. I imagine I can sense the silent disappearance of the angel's share as it wafts away into nothing. My shoe scuffs against the floor, and I freeze in the dim, silent warehouse. But nothing happens. There's a walkway that runs the length of the warehouse, and as I reach it, I have no idea which direction to go in this enormous place to find Ryan. Then I see him. He's to the left, at the far end of the barrel-lined corridor, wearing a purple cloak and looking down at something in front of him. I check to make sure no one's entered behind me, then creep forward in the low light. My breath comes shallower, and I pray he doesn't turn around. If he does, all I'll be able to do is dart into one of the rows of aging bourbon and pray I'm fast enough to avoid detection. As I get closer, I realize what's in front of him. A book sits on a small table... Leather cover with heavy, slightly brown pages. And he's writing in it. Probably some Da Vinci Code bullshit, but I'm extremely curious nonetheless. I duck into a row of barrels a few feet from him and peer out. When he finishes what he's doing, he hesitates. He takes his phone out of his pocket and stares at it for a long moment. Then he sighs and pockets both phone and pen. I expect him to pick up the book... And I'm wondering whether I have the guts to confront him, even knowing he'll probably call for someone and I'll be busted and, oh God, why does that stupid you in danger girl gif pop into my brain now? Thanks, Reddit. But he closes the book and turns to leave. I pull back and hold as still as possible. He passes me without a hitch in his step. I lean out to watch him until he's gone. I may only have a few seconds. Someone will come back for this book, right? I need to know what it is. I whip out my phone and scurry forward. My time is limited. I flip the book open halfway through and see dates. I page backward and discover, yes, what's in this book is in chronological order. And what is in it? I catch glimpses as I go, all misdeeds, all with signatures after them. It's a book of secrets, illegal ones, Bribery of a judge in 2013. Transfer of funds to an offshore account in 2008. A consortium fixing a race in 1998. There are photos pasted in some of the pages. Could there be something about what happened to Delilah in here? First Peg, then Delilah. I need to prove I'm right about Peg. Then maybe someone will listen to me about my cousin. I flip and flip until I find the dates I'm looking for. Peg's murder, and I snap a photo with my phone, and then another of the next two pages. I don't have time to stand here reading. There's a sound at the other end of the warehouse, and I flip the pages a little forward and then hesitate at a photo I recognize. The alibi photo. Smiling Dick and his friends. There's no date on this version. I page past it and dash back to my hiding place, praying I made it before the guys were in the walkway. I lie down flat, so I'll be completely hidden by the barrels set lengthways through the middle of this row. I'm afraid to breathe. I wait, listening to the sounds of conversation and footsteps and gripping my phone tightly. Sweat forms on my upper lip. The cloaked group gathers around the book, and I can only see the back edge of the circle. You have shared a secret with your new brothers, entered into our book, Richard says. Now... You will prove that you trust them, and they will prove that you can. Bring the hemlock cup. A pause before Travis speaks, a mix of slurred and stilted. Here is the drink we have prepared for our brother Ryan Graham Carlisle. If he survives, he is one of us. The pageantry is killing me. If it were really hemlock in the cup, he wouldn't survive. There's silence, I assume while Ryan drinks something, and then everyone cheers. Do you swear to protect the secrets of your brothers and come to their aid in times of need? Travis asks, and it's clear he had to memorize the wording, or maybe he's reading it off a paper. I swear, says Ryan. Richard takes over, his voice booming through the warehouse. Welcome, Ryan, to the Order of St. Franklin. Welcome, brother, the others in tone. Thank you, brothers, Ryan says. Grandfather. Now let's go drink some bourbon, Travis shouts, and the others cheer again. The man from outside walks forward into my line of sight and says, You can all go change back there. I'll take care of the book. The boys do as they're told, forming an orderly cue. Richard nods to the man, then trails the rest. He's beaming proud of Ryan. I'm still fixed on the man. I do know him. It's Len Brockman, the chain-smoking cop who was so rude to me, the cop who'd handled Peg Graham's murder investigation. What in the hell is he doing here? Managing security at Ryan's secret society induction? Working for Grandfather Carlyle? Handling a book that has Dick Carlisle's alibi photo in it? I take special care not to move a muscle as they finish up and leave. I'm about to be locked in here for the night. I can feel it. That's still better than getting caught. I'm itching to examine the pictures I took of the pages of the book from around the time of the murder. But I'm not stupid enough to alert Lynn Brockman to my presence. Did he catch Delilah snooping? Is that what happened to her? My entire body feels frozen into ice at the thought. Like I might shatter. My mom's words that I'm repeating Delilah's mistakes come back to me. She has no idea how right she is. And wait, if I get trapped in here, well, Jen will wonder where I am eventually. But if I text her where I am, I'm busted. And if she texts me and I don't respond, she'll freak out. What if she reports me missing? She might use my full name. Rockman's shadow passes by me. He has the book in a hand against his side, a golden hemlock design identical to the pin's design on the front. I listen so hard to his every step until they fade away that my ears hurt. Maybe I can get out of here before they lock up. I wait until I'm certain he's gone. Then I slip my phone into my skirt pocket and push up to my knees. Then my feet... I walk as quietly as possible to the end of the row and step out into the walkway and straight into the path of Ryan, who's quickly striding back into the warehouse and toward me. He's changed into regular clothes. He squints. Macy? Please, I whisper. Don't tell. He rushes forward and keeps his voice down, but his worry is plain. What are you doing? You shouldn't be here. Brockman calls out from the direction of the entrance you find what you forgot. I look desperately at Ryan. He just pledged allegiance to his brothers. No way he's not gonna rat me out. I scramble backward, nearly tripping, and Ryan's brow creases with concern. Trust me, he asks, and his face is so sincere, and Brockman's footsteps are in the walkway coming toward us. I can't manage a response, but Ryan pulls me into him and kisses me with surprising tenderness. A throat clears and Ryan tucks me against his chest and turns his head to greet the former detective. I bury my face against his shirt and thank God for my wig. Found it, Ryan says, putting on the facade of cocky rich kid. I asked her to meet me down here. Can you give us a few minutes of privacy? Relief floods my veins. He's covering for me. Rockman frowns, something I can just make out under Ryan's arm. I imagine he wants to ask if I've been here the whole time or if I snuck in after the rest of the Order boys left. Ryan apparently realizes the same. "'I told her to come in and meet me after the guys took off,' he says. "'Don't worry.' Rockman nods, and it's clear he's working hard not to roll his eyes. "'Sure, Ryan. It's your big night. Anything you want. How long do you need?' "'Thanks,' Ryan says. "'I'll call you when we're done.' you won't tell my grandfather? Just don't be too long, Rockman says, and leaves. I'm sure he needs another smoke break. I collapse back against the bourbon barrels. Ryan pushes away, then checks the aisle. He's gone, he says, and turns to me. What are you doing here? I regain a little composure. He did just protect me. That's something. I remember my phone and the photos I have, but I need to see this conversation through first. I'm investigating, I say, then brace myself. Delilah was looking into the order when she died. Ryan's eyes widen in what looks like genuine surprise. What? I swallow. May as well lay down all my cards. I saw the photo of her on your phone. I know you know something you're not telling me. Ryan... Why have you been lying to me? Ryan scrubs a hand through his hair. I did see her around at a couple of parties, just like I told you. The photo on your phone is from the night she died. He pauses. I didn't realize I'd been at the same party the night she died until later. Until you spoke about her on the way to the prison. I don't even remember seeing her. I snapped a couple of photos with people there, and I guess she's in the background? I can show you if you want. I reach out for his phone and he hands it over. My heart pounds as I unlock it, glad he doesn't comment on how easily I punch in the code. I scroll back and back and find it. Here. Delilah, now that I examine the photo more closely, is a little behind another girl, not looking straight into the camera. Her grin is wide. I watch Ryan intently as he looks at his phone, scanning for any sign of guilt. I swear I didn't know I had that photo. I should have told you I was there, though. Ryan looks at me with such sincerity that I can't discount it. I didn't want to upset you. I know I messed up. If this... He gestures around us. St. Franklin bullshit had anything to do with Delilah's death. I'll help you find out. I search his face. Really? His eyes are steady on mine as he answers. I swear... I feel like he's telling the truth, but... You're that chill about me breaking into your phone? Macy, your snooping is one of the things I like best about you. I shouldn't have lied to you. I should have told you right away. I'm sorry. I feel my cheeks heat. Some day I will react to compliments like an adult. But not today. You can understand why I didn't trust you for a while there. Yeah, I'm an idiot. I should have known you'd find out. He shakes his head. Does that mean you might trust me again? You can, you know. Can I? My heart beats at his words. I want to believe him. Ask me anything, he says. No more lies. Okay. Go big or go home. What's that book? The Book of Secrets, he says. It's been around since the beginning, they claim. Kept at a secure location except for official gatherings. Kept at a secure location by Lynn Brockman, I say. Ryan frowns. You mean Lenny? The guy who was just here, I try. He works security, Ryan says. My heart beats too hard. Since when? Practically my whole life. He's always working this or that event, doing jobs for people. Why? He sounds like he's being truthful. Ryan, you really don't know who he is? I don't. And now you're making me worry. Is that why you were so scared? Who is he? I rest my back against a shelf, gathering my arms around myself. He was the lead detective on your mother's case. Ryan is quiet for a long moment. Let's get out of here. Come home with me? All right, I say. Six. We don't talk on the drive out to the farm. We don't need to. For the first time in days, I don't feel like the world is collapsing around me. Or it is, but I'm not alone. Somehow, that makes all the difference. Ryan tells me his dad is away with Skylar in Mexico for the weekend. We have the place all to ourselves. We have so much to talk about, but we don't talk. I follow Ryan upstairs to his room. I don't let my thoughts linger on what happened in the master bedroom those long years ago when we passed the closed door. He brings up two glasses of bourbon, neat, but we barely sip them before we fall into his bed together. His hands in my hair, my lips on his skin. Not thinking feels like heaven. Maybe this is the angel's share. I wake up before him the next morning, shocked that I managed to sleep the whole night through. My phone's on the bedside table, and I sit up and reach over for it. Ryan throws his arm over mine and says, no, too early. But this stolen time, thinking only about each other, has to end. We're close to answers. I can feel it. I roll over and meet his eyes. I took pictures of the book. He draws back a fraction. Of what I wrote? I smile and shake my head. No, and I'm not going to ask either. I am a little surprised to find it's true. Trusting you, remember? Then what, he asks, smiling back. God, he's gorgeous, rumpled in bed first thing in the morning. The pages around the time of your mom's murder. I took pictures of those. Do you guys ever look through it? I didn't even question that the night before. Would your grandfather have let you near it if there was something in it about your mom? No, no one reads it, he says. It just gets added to. It's insurance, a record of loyalty, for loyalty. I can practically see him steal himself for whatever we might find. Let's look. It could be nothing, I say. You don't believe that? No, I say, I don't. Part of me wants it to be nothing, but a more insistent part wants it to be everything. I want a killer episode- I want something that will assuage the ache of guilt about Brandon. I want to know who killed Peg and covered it up, finally. Let's see them then. Ryan huddles in beside me, putting his chin over my shoulder. I thumb up the photo gallery and zoom in so we can read, tracking the dates. There's one for the day after the murder, or rather the early morning after it happened. The time reads 2.45 a.m. I see Dick Carlyle's signature among a dozen others signed to the secret. The entry is simple. These brothers of the order will publicly swear Dick Carlisle was with them for dinner, returning home at approximately 11 p.m. Dad's alibi, Ryan says. They made it up. You're listening to Dead Air by Gwenda Bond, starring Lynn
0: Norris. Produced by Realm your portal to another world Realm listen away
1: hey it's Mae Whitman and I play Frankie in the new Realm podcast The Sisters The Sisters is about a museum curator of medical oddities who investigates the origins of a mutated skeleton with two layers of bones
0: seven ribs are completely fused and you have no idea where this came from no
1: Listen to The Sisters wherever you get your podcasts. We dream about it. We both dream about it. How often? Every night.
0: Dead Air is created by Gwenda Bond and written by Gwenda Bond, Rachel Kane, and Carrie Ryan. It is produced by Julian Yap and executive produced by Molly Barton. Audio production, sound design, editing, and theme music by Amanda Rose Smith.